You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 46. This week, I would like to thank Ryan for his donation, and for everyone who has liked or commented on the Source of the Week posts on Facebook, which I've really enjoyed putting together, and it's good to see that some people like them. This week marks our third episode on the Italian front, and we will talk about the Second Battle of Isonzo for almost the entire episode, before looking a bit at the lead-up to the Third Battle. The Italians had begun their attacks with huge amounts of hope and optimism. This optimism was on all levels of the Italian army, from the commanders all the way down to the frontline troops. Now, after the failures of the first Asanzo battle, this hope turned to grim determination on the part of the troops, and to a thought process bordering on delusional for the Italian commanders. At the beginning of July, there was a meeting of Allied commanders in France, and every country of the alliance was represented, including Italy represented by Cadorna. The goal of the meeting was to try and coordinate some operations to help out the Russians. If you remember the timeline, uh, this is right around the moment when the Germans and Austrians were really starting to put the screws down on the Russians in Poland, and as such, they needed all the help that they could get. The conference concluded with Cadorna traveling back to Italy, ready to launch more attacks, confident that these would be the ones to succeed. While Cadorna was spoiling for another fight, the troops he was commanding were far less so. The space between the first and second battles was just 11 days, and during that time, the Italian units had been frantically absorbing reinforcements to make good their previous losses, and also spending every free moment improving their positions in any way they could find. The one thing in shortest supply for the Italian troops was rest. Cadorna pinpointed July 18th as the day on which he would launch his second attack, and the plan that he would use would be very similar to the plan used for the first attack. One of the big changes for the second attack was for Cadorna to demand more vigorous attacks from his commanders and troops on the front line, which I'm sure was very comforting to the units who had lost so many men in the first attack. They had obviously been lazy, cowardly, and feeble for the first attack, so they better really pick it up this time. 
Now there was a change made for this attack, and that change was in focus. The first battle had been focused on Gorizia, but the second battle would have the Austrian positions on the Carso and on the slopes of Mount San Michel as their primary focus. Cadorna realized after the first attack that Mount St. Michel and the northern side of the Carso were an impediment to any further attacks against Gorizia, and it was because of this that the Third Army would focus most of its strength on an attack against these two objectives. There would still be fighting further to the north, of course. The Second Army would attack against Mersley Ridge, Hill 383, and Mount Sabatino, but they would be a sideshow for this specific attack. Cadorna also tried to attack on a wide front, which, like in the, for the French in the west, rarely accomplished anything except pile up casualties during the secondary attacks. He would do this for almost every battle during the Isonzo. The Italians had 18 divisions and 900 guns ready for the attack, and the Austrians had 9 divisions and 431 guns, so they still had a pretty solid 2-1 to advantage for the Italians. For their part, the Austrians knew that this was coming, and they were improving their positions as best as they could. When they weren't actually trying to break their way through the rocky ground, they spent as much time as possible resting. And I'm sure this is one of those situations where the number two item on every men's wish list, right after going back home, was to somehow develop the ability to bottle sleep so that it could be consumed later. It would be sorely needed. While researching this episode, I found a good accounts of the fighting during the second battle, and while they were given by troops fighting near the Mersley Ridge in the north, they applied to the front as a whole, so I thought I might showcase them at the beginning, so that you can keep them in mind as we move through the fighting. The first is from Captain Abel, who was one of the defenders. Quote, There is no escaping the heat. Tongues swell, coated with thick saliva. Fingers swell and dangle clumsily from sticky hands. Eyes inflamed, skin like parchment. The blinding light beats everywhere, penetrating our eyelids. Our flasks are empty, sucked dry by early morning, end quote. The heat is something I haven't spent much time discussing on this front, but it was a serious problem for the troops, and would continue to be for all of the summer months of fighting. The second quote is from an Italian officer, who was part of an attack up a mountain to try and reach the top and the Austrian trenches. In this quote, he discusses what happened to his men when they actually managed to reach the wire. Quote, they reached the wire through a hail of bullets, overtaking the wire cutters who go down like nine pins. In desperation, the captain's party tries to tear out the pegs that pin the stands of wire to the ground. It cannot be done. They try to hack through the wire with little hatchets, but the wire is too thick. Others have caught up by now, and men are dying all around. End quote. The only way that the officer survived was by finding cover and waiting for nightfall so that, they could re- that he could retreat. These type of experiences were had by both sides all along the front. So while we talk about the days and days of fighting that follow, remember the fact that these men were suffering from thirst and the heat of high summer on the mountains, where there wasn't a bit of shade to be found. We begin our actual discussion of the battle in the north on the Mersley Ridge, where the Italians were actually able to make quick progress during the opening attacks, even capturing the Austrian front line. This trench, nicknamed Big Trench, was a very well-built series of defenses that was difficult to take and should have been easy to defend. After they were captured by Italian troops, or what was left of them, they were determined to hold it against all counterattacks by the Austrians. But the Austrians had other plans. 
Instead of focusing on the front line, the Austrian artillery simply created a curtain of steel behind the front that kept the weary Italians from receiving any reinforcements or supplies. And this meant that the troops that were left did their very best, but they were simply pushed back by the Austrians in vicious hand-to-hand combat. It would be a very long time before they would be able to get back to these lines of trenches. As I mentioned earlier, the primary focus of the attack was in the south, and here on the Carso, the artillery opened fire at 4 a.m. on July 18th. Almost all of the guns available to the 3rd Army were focused on Mount San Michel and the surrounding area. This time, the guns weren't just firing erratically as they did in the first battle. Instead, using information gained during the first attack, they were able to pinpoint and focus their fire on Austrian strongpoints. Unlike during the first attacks, this bombardment managed to do some serious damage to several key positions. One regimental history on the Austrian side would say, quote, the gigantic hard-pounding hammering of thousands of shells, which no word on God's earth can express, end quote. All of this was happening while thousands of rock fragments, like a never-ending series of grenades, flew everywhere. In front of me right now, I have four different sources on this battle, and all four give a different time for when the infantry went over to the attack on the Carso. One of them says 11 a.m., two of them say 1 p.m., and one of them says 2 p.m. So, I'm not sure exactly which one is correct, but one thing is for certain. Whenever the barrage stopped, the Italian troops rose from their trenches and charged in their densely packed formations with bayonets fixed and glistening in front of them. What was left of the Austrian machine guns began tearing gaping holes in their lines, but they still came on. Throughout the afternoon and evening of the 18th, they charged again and again. Sometimes they would falter in the middle of the lines. Sometimes they would reach the Austrian lines and engage in hand-to-hand combat. But even with all of their bravery and skill, the Italians were also thrown back every single time to their starting point. By the end of the day's attacks, the gains on the Carso were limited. On the 19th, they would try again, launching yet more attacks. This time they were able to push the Austrian defenders, who had been defending against the larger Italian forces for over 24 hours, off of Hill 143. After so many hours of defending their hill, the Austrian 20th Division refused to let it go without a fight, and they launched a determined counterattack. Unfortunately for the 20th, they ran right into a pre-planned Italian artillery barrage that had been scheduled to precede another Italian attack. Caught in the open and completely exposed to the rain of shells, the 20th was nearly annihilated. They had come into the battle on the 19th with 6,000 men, and just two days later, they they were just 2,000 strong. On July 22nd, another attack was launched by the 20th, and this time they came back with just 1,200 men. The men of the 20th had reached the end of their strength and could not attack any further. All of this action was happening on the Carso, but now we will look at the attacks that had been going on at the same time against Mount San Michel, on the far north of the Carso, and it was here that the fate of the battle was truly at stake. Sometimes, the second battle of Isonzo is called the Battle of San Michel, 
That is how important this little piece of the battle would be. I won't be calling it that, since every battle seems to have at least some action on San Michel, and it would throw off the entire naming scheme of all 11 battles of the Asanzo. But when the attacks were launched, the Italians found some success right at the beginning. By early afternoon on the 19th of July, the fighting had reached the bottom slopes of the mountain. In Asanzo, the fighting is described as disorganized more a series of close encounters between small units of attackers and defenders than any sort of coherent struggle. All that really mattered, regardless of how organized or not the attack was, it was that the Italians were actually able to reach the summit. At 5.30pm on July 19th, they took possession of and fully secured the top of the mountain. The Austrians found themselves 300 feet below them on the eastern side of the mountain. This was quite the role reversal, and now it would be the Austrians attacking uphill against the Italians, something that wouldn't happen very often during 1915. From their positions, the Italians could see all the way to Gorizia, and the Austrian defenses in between, and then they could also see the same distance to the south across the Carso. It was plain to see the importance of these positions, and Cadorna quickly sent in two divisions during the night to reinforce the troops at the top. These were the last reserves that Cadorna had available to him at this moment, but the position was definitely worth it. He also would begin the process of trying to free up other units as well, just in case they were needed. On the Austrian side, Borovich knew that the position had to be retaken, and retaken soon, before the reinforcing Italians would arrive. But he had exactly zero reserves to send to help. All he could do was hope that the troops on the spot should complete the attack successfully. Every gun the Austrians could find was pointed towards the mountain, and at 2am they began to fire on the mountain, a barrage that lasted just an hour. The troops that were sent in to attack were the men of the 12th Mountain Brigade, and as they charged up the hill, they could have no idea that the next day they would be doing this exact same thing. They reached the Italian lines and fought hand-to-hand with the Italian defenders. Unfortunately for the Italians, the reinforcements that Cadorna had sent had not yet fully arrived, and for the briefest of moments, the Austrians found themselves with the numerical advantage. For two hours, the fighting raged at the top of the mountain, back and forth, in a close-run situation. This was to be one of the defining moments of the first year of fighting, not that the troops knew it at the time. If the Italians had been able to hang on, if the Twelfth Mountain had failed, everything could have turned out so differently. As it was, by 5am the Italians had been pushed off the top and the Austrians were back in control. The Italians were pushed all the way back down to their original positions. And if the Austrian attackers had been any stronger, there is a real possibility that it could have turned into a complete rout. Instead, given the weakness of the Twelfth Mountain, they were forced to just take the top of the mountain and allow the Italians to retreat back to their lines in good order. After the retreat from the top of the mountain, both sides on the Carso and on San Michel would take a brief break from the fighting. It wouldn't last very long, but after five days of constant fighting, it was welcomed by the men of both sides. On the 24th of July, Cadorna found some more troops and renewed the attack on San Michel. Cadorna was still perfectly confident that the next effort would bring his men to victory, and two divisions were sent up the mountain again early in the morning on July 25th. 
At 9.30, they moved up the mountain and were again able to get to the top. The intense bombardment by the Italians had made it impossible for the Austrian defenders to hold on. More Italian troops reached the top this time, but there were also no reinforcements to send. They were on their own. The only troops that the Austrians had was the 12th Mountain, who were called upon yet again to make the attack. At noon on the 26th, they charged up the mountain, and again they were able to beat the Italians back in hand-to-hand combat. The 12th Mountain, true heroes that they were, then held the mountain for two more days, as the Italians continued to launch attack after attack. Each attack, though, lacked just a bit of the ferocity of the attack before it, so they sort of just slowly tapered off. During this time, the Italians were able to capture Hill 118, to the south of Saint-Michel, but it was a small consolation from losing the mountain. By the 29th of July, the heat and the lack of supplies were getting to the men on both sides. These problems, coupled with the losses, meant that neither side was able to continue to attack on a large scale. Smaller attacks would continue all the way until August 7th, before Cadorna would officially call them off, ending the Second Battle of Asanzo. And during that time, both sides had lost a lot more men. In total for the battle, both sides lost around 50,000 men. The numbers are, as always, a bit fuzzy, but it is possible that it is this battle that is the only one where Austrians lost more men than the Italians. When you consider how many fewer troops the Austrians had, you realize that by percentage, they were extremely weak after the battle ended. Both sides had felt the losses hardest in the officer corps. Bravely leading their men on attack and counterattacks, the officers of both sides made up a very high proportion of the casualties relative to their numbers. Overall, the Italians gained very little in terms of real gains from the attacks, mainly just Hill 118. And since the beginning of the war, the Italians had now accrued losses equal to 1 20th of their numbers since the start of the war. Fortunately for everyone on both sides, it would be almost two months before the next major attack was launched. After the failure of the second battle, Cadorna did not plan for his army to sit idle for the rest of the war and he would spend the rest of the summer planning and preparing for his next offensive. He did, however, realize he would have to wait at least a bit. His first concern wasn't the situation for the men, but instead their munitions and equipment. Cadorna wanted more heavy artillery, and more shells for the guns that he did have. He had guns brought in from coastal fortifications and anywhere else that he could find them, and he also found more machine guns to give the troops. During this time, a few Western Front innovations also found their way into Italian hands, things like trench mortars and grenades first among them. For ammunition, the Italy's manufacturing couldn't keep close to the numbers that Cadorna wanted, and supplies from other countries weren't coming in fast enough. Because of this reason, Cadorna actually planned to wait longer for the third offensive than what would end up happening. There were some outside influences that would end up forcing his hand and moving him to attack soon. The first pressure was directly from Rome. The costly defeats of the first two attacks weighed on the Italian government. They had been promised a quick and easy victory, and those had failed, and they were beginning to wonder how long of a slog this was going to be. Prime Minister Solanja, who had been so eager for Italy to get into the war, 
now made several visits from the capital to Cadorna's headquarters to question the general about when the great victory was actually going to take place. In October, the British and French also came to Cadorna and requested a resumption of the offensive, this time to take pressure off of Serbia. This is right around the time that the Germans and Austrians were starting to bear down on Serbia hard, and things were not going well at all for the valiant Serbs. These are events that we will discuss later this year. Even though Cadorna wouldn't be able to wait for all of his preparations to complete, he would still go into the next battle with his 2 to 1 advantage in artillery, which I guess is as good as you can expect. The Italian soldiers had been using their break well. The front lines were still very dangerous, but every day the trenches were made a little bit deeper, and the front was just a little bit safer for the Italians. The first steel helmets also began to arrive in September, and the troops were able to get some time off of the line for at least a little bit. They got new uniforms and new socks, and were able to make some trips to the field brothels. I guess everything a growing boy needs. All of this came to an end on October the 9th, when Cadorna cancelled all leave in preparation for his next attack. But for the time that they had it, the rest of for the Italians was enjoyed greatly. On the Austrian side, they also were not idle during the break between battles. Borovich made requests for more troops and more equipment, and his requests were met in a lot of ways. He was given 200 more artillery guns and three more divisions of troops. Two of these divisions were considered to be two of the very best in all of the Austro-Hungarian army at this point in the war. All of the men spent the lull during the fighting improving their entrenchments and fortifications. Every man available, including some Russian prisoners brought in as work gangs, were used to improve the line. There were of course trenches dug, but also caves and grottos were expanded and improved to provide areas for larger groups of troops to shelter in. There would be 128,000 Austrians at the front, and they would be better prepared than ever to meet the attack. This readiness also included a slight change in tactics. In the earlier battles, the Austrians had maintained a strong frontline presence to deny the Italians any gains. Now they moved most of their men out of the front line to positions that offered more protection from artillery. The front line would be lightly held by observers who would communicate any attack back to the troops waiting behind the front line in well-protected dugouts and caves. As soon as the artillery fire slackened, these troops moved out of these positions and manned the fire lines. The second and third lines of trenches were similarly equipped with deep dugouts to protect the men in them, and this meant that from here on out, the Italian bombardments would have less of an effect on the troops subjected to them. For the third battle, Cadorna would go back to putting his primary focus on the hills around Gorizia, and this time he would plan for a two-phase battle. The first point of effort would be on those hills around Gorizia, and then the second effort would be placed upon the Carso and on Mount San Michel. So you could sort of think of the third battle as taking the two plans from the first two battles and smashing them together. These would be the objectives of the second and third armies respectively, and Cadorna would have 350,000 men to pursue them. The Austrians would be ready though, finding out about their plans from deserters who brought over detailed information on the Italian plans in the weeks leading up to the attack. Next week, we will dive into the third and fourth battles, as the Italians try and push the Austrians out before winter snows start forcing the end of the fighting. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode, 
and have a wonderful week.